Jamie 40 here doing a decoding of uh, Bronze Age pervert. Bronze Age pervert venerates ancient Greece where man-boy love was the thing. All right, not, not marriage. All right, uh, Bronze Age pervert doesn't have much time for marriage. Doesn't understand why men would want to waste their time around women. He generally doesn't find women objects of erotic attraction, but uh, young men, that's where it's at. So in ancient Greece, the era that uh, Bronze Age pervert idealizes and venerates and worships, right? The highest form of love in ancient Greece was between men and boys. So Jerry Sandusky seems like uh, perhaps a, an archetype for Bronze Age pervert, right? Jerry Sandusky, great defensive coordinator, very hands-on, wanting to work with boys, very hands-on, cornholing boys in the shower. And that kind of man-boy love seems to be the the energy that drives Bronze Age pervert, just uh, idealizes, the, you know, man-boy love. That's that's really where it's at, staying away from icky women. The other thing that seems to characterize him is that he's dropped his real-life identity, completely submerged himself into trying to make himself an online god and be worshipped online. He's dropped his real-life identity, just merged himself into this online persona. And like Leo Strauss, many Leo Strauss acolytes, uh, Bronze Age pervert believes that he has a secret decoder ring for understanding the ancient thinkers such as Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. So he did his PhD thesis on the problem of tyranny and philosophy in the thought of Plato and Nietzsche, and uh, his dissertation advisor, Stephen Smith, said it was original perspective, but his original perspective purporting that he had the secret decoder ring for what Socrates really meant. So uh, the Bronze Age pervert holds that uh, he knows what Plato really meant, that uh, Plato pers- purposefully made Socrates' anti-tyranny argument so weak that he must have intended that his audience side with the defense of tyranny. So Bronze Age pervert thinks that Caligula is a heroic figure, that uh, we should look to tyrants like Caligula. It's kind of the way forward. So like uh, Mencius Moldbug and uh, his veneration of monarchy. So Mencius Moldbug has, has no time for democracy, for messy relationships like that. He just wants a kin, king to rule over us, right? It's a fantasy delusional world by, that uh, unsurprisingly comes from people who spend a great deal of time online and very interested in creating their own online persona, more interested in creating online persona than real-world corrections. So the, the bloke behind Bronze Age Pervert essentially gone silent in the real world since 2018, so he can devote himself to promoting a homoerotic man-boy you know, love as the highest ideal form of human interaction and promoting the rule of tyrants and uh, substituting for democratic rule, the rule of uh, military figures. So we discussed the Bronze Age pervert on the book club that we did on my show once a week for about two years with Kevin Michael Grace. This is from my show, June 22, 2018. 3pm Pacific time and uh, the book this week. It's a hard one to be indifferent about. If you pick this book up, I, I reckon you'll either love it or hate it. There's a book called The Bronze Age Mindset and uh, Kevin Michael Grace chose it. Kevin, why did you choose this book? I thought it would be fun. I know very little about Bronze Age of Pervert. Uh, I, I suspect that very few people do, and this is deliberate. On his part, uh, he calls his book a manifesto, 
Uh, well, first of all, uh, let me uh, read something from a Vox article, and we all know about Vox, so, you know, come Grano Salas. Nobody knows who Bronze Age pervert is, but among a subset of internet denizens, he's something of a demigod, a Jordan Peterson in miniature. He was well-known enough for the neo-reactionary and proto-alt-right thinker Curtis Yarvin, better known by his pseudonym Mencius Moldbug, to name-check. And a uh, question in the, in the chat. Does 40 have an inspiring vision of the future? Is it just get married, have kids, and die? Yeah, I have an inspiring vision of the future, and that is today your actions are in harmony, right? That you do the things that you want to do, you avoid doing the things that you don't want to do, that the different parts of your life work together, that you play an important role in the lives of people around you, that you are loved by people around you and you love them. And you live a life that's in harmony with your values. So you don't state certain values and then live a life completely contradictory, but instead your life, your actions, your beliefs, the various sectors of your life kind of all work together so that you can have the best possible relations with the people who are in your life. That's, that's my heroic vision of the future, right? Where you, you do what you say, you say what you do, you mean what you say, you say what you mean as appropriate to the context and the situation, and you're not doing things, you know, in private, you'd be ashamed of being known publicly that, uh, what you do in church and what you do in synagogue and what you do at the bar, what you do at a stadium, what you do with your friends, with your acquaintances, with your work colleagues, with people in various communities that you're a part of, that it all basically works together. So I have a vision of a harmonious life. And that, that vision contains 5 to 15 hours a week uh, volunteering, helping out other people. So every day... You should be doing things that you can feel good about that are not just the selfish fulfillment of your own basic needs. That's my vision. I came in a recent interview with an Atlantic journalist telling Rosie Gray that Bronze Age Pervert was his contact inside the White House. Well, this seems to have been an attempt to troll Gray. It speaks to Bronze Age Pervert's relative notoriety within this type of community. Now, this writer does not know what notoriety means. Notoriety is a bad thing, not a good thing. And furthermore, it is clear from reading this book that... Uh, so Kevin, uh, Luke says that uh, the life I describe is not really heroic. Well, to the people who are positively affected by what I'm doing, for the people for whom I play a role in helping them break out of deadly addictions and compulsions, for some of them, it's absolutely heroic. For people who need my help and I provide it, it's heroic. For the people who benefit from when I extend myself and commit myself to causes and volunteer opportunities and, and commitments, you know, greater and above myself. Yeah, it's, uh, it's heroic that uh, other people get to benefit. Sometimes, you know, reasonably large number of people, 100, 200, 300 people get to benefit when I put their welfare ahead of my own for a few hours a week. So if you need people and people are there to help you out, uh, most people find that uh, verging on the heroic. When people look forward to seeing you, when you lift people up consistently, when you are overwhelmingly a source of joy rather than a source of aggravation and depression in people's life, and you're a source of joy because you have joy, yeah, people tend to find that really good, if not verging on the heroic, if you can bring that day in, day out. If you can be someone who's at ease with yourself, and therefore at ease with other people, at ease with reality, so that people find themselves relaxing when they're around you, when people find themselves letting their hair down, where people feel like they can be open and honest around you, where they don't have to pretend 
so they don't have to put on a persona where they don't have to you know, claim to be one thing when they're really something else and that that release of unnecessary tension and aggravation uh, just unleashes you know joy and uh, souls coming out of hiding yeah many people find that heroic rather than creating a fake online persona claiming that you have the secret decoder ring to the ancients that uh, the highest form of love is between men and boys that we really need more tyrants like Caligula ruling over us yeah I would say that uh, I, I prefer my presentation of the heroic to the veneration of homoerotic love between men and boys as being greater than the love in, in a nuclear family. I would uh, say that the veneration of, of tyrants like Caligula is an inferior version, an inferior vision to what I share on this channel. He is not like Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson is an Apollonian and Bronze Age pervert is clearly a Dionysian. And what, what are the main differences between Apollonian and Dionysian? Well, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, Apollonian stands for order and Dionysian stands for disorder. Yeah. I mean, it's much more complicated than that. But uh, one might say that an Apollonian is devoted to reason, whereas a Dionysian is devoted to uh, passion. Uh, the most famous Dionysian of our age uh, is Jim Morrison of the Doors. He's been celebrated uh, for that by many people. There's a cult. But 40, any inspiring vision for the future of humanity? Well, it helps if you pay your bills, if you have good relations with other people, you make consistent, solid, you know, pro-social decisions to free up time in your life to then devote to poetry, to music, to thinking about society, politics, philosophy, art, right? So... If you are creating space for that in your life because of the positive choices that you make, because of the self-discipline that you show, because you have set aside savings, because you choose to create time for yourself to explore ideas, to join communities, to build your relationships with other people who are similarly you know, inspired or similarly want to you know, guide humanity in a, in a better direction, all right, then you can build on the positive choices. But if your personal life is a mess, if you're getting deeper and deeper into debt, if you rely upon welfare, if you're a sucker on, if you suck on the teeth of your family or of your community or of your nation, right? I, I am highly skeptical of, you know, any contributions you're going to make towards the future of humanity. Possible. But uh, first, as Jordan Peterson says, clean your room, get your own life clean, organized, lead a life that's in harmony, not at war. And out of that, out of the good connections that you build and a life that is interwoven with the lives of other people, you're far more likely to produce a vision for the future that is useful and accords with reality rather than a delusional homoerotic worship me and suck me off vision that's venerate tyrants presented by Bronze Age pervert, you know, the, the Jerry Sandusky of the alt-right. Around him because of that? You know, reading this book, I, I was struck by something that uh, the great uh, critic Lester Bangs uh, once uh, said to Cameron Crowe, that he talked, he asked him about what typewriter he used, and they were talking about writing, and Lester Bangs said somebody to the effect that uh, he liked to take meth, and he'd just, you know, like type 25 pages, you know, just to write, you know? And it struck me that this book is not so much of a manifesto and more of a prose poem, or a, a fever dream, if you will. Yeah. I mean, there are so many misspellings in the book that uh, I assume that, that, that there's a point to them. Well, I, I got the impression that uh, this fellow is not a native English speaker. 
I also got the impression that he comes from the uh, f- former Soviet Empire, either from uh, Russia itself or from one of the countries of the Warsaw Pact. I mean, the, the Slavic speakers have a big problem with the article. Uh, they will frequently not use the word the where it should be used. Yeah, this is uh, this is smart here from Kevin deducing that uh, Bronze Age pervert came from East, Eastern Europe. He came from Romania, moved to the United States at uh, age 10. So you can often tell a great deal about a guru, a thought leader, a, a live streamer by the quality of the people he attracts. And Bronze Age pervert you know, attracts this rabid audience you know, that is highly reactive to the slightest you know, criticism of their hero. So one of the signs that you're dealing with someone who's bad for you is if they cultivate this unnecessarily strong in-group, out-group identity where the in-group is those who listen to them and worship them and, and follow them. And to the extent that I have a following, I would not want to have a, a rabid following. Right? I would not want people wasting their energy defending me. I sometimes have good points to make. I often have daft points to make. I frequently have no points to make. Uh, and, and so too with you know anyone else who, who does what what I do. Like at times you're going to have a good point in a certain situation. You might have something useful, relevant, even cutting and incisive. Plenty of the time you'll be absolutely daft and, and wrong, and uh, much of the time you'll just be mediocre. But there's this rabid in-group versus out-group mentality fostered by Bronze Age pervert that uh, highly reacts against uh, the slightest criticism of of their hero. I think that's unhealthy, along with this delusional idea that he's got the personal decoder ring to the ancients like Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, and uh, what uh, the author of The Prince, Niccolo Machiavelli. I think that's absurd. And they will frequently insert thes where they should not be used. I mean, to a certain extent, his, his language, his written language is highly stylized, but again, there are a great number of gross grammatical errors, which I suppose could be deliberate but that would indicate a really high uh, level uh, of accomplishment to pull that sort of thing off over a 138-page uh, book. And I will point out that the book is only 138 pages, well, at least in my uh, ebook edition. But it is actually longer than that because there are very few paragraphs. Yeah. How, how did you hear about Bronze Age Pervert in, in the first place? Do you remember? I don't. He was one of those people who seemed to uh, rise up in 2016 or at the same time uh, Ricky Vaughn did. And... You know, that there was a cult that, that arose around him. That's really all I know about him. That's a bad sign. All right, someone who comes online, stays anonymous, devotes himself to, to building an online persona, uh, inviting worship, you know, very similar to Nick Fuentes and uh, Richard Spencer, uh, someone who submerges their real self in an online persona, not a good sign. And what did you think of the book? Well, I think that... It... It rather reminds me of the French novelist Louis-Ferdinand Céline, who, whom he name-checks uh, in, in the text, although it, it's far more anarchic uh, than Céline. There is a sort of a, a fury to it, to the narrative. And as well, as opposed... And what's the basis of the fury? The basis of the fury is that this world has not accorded the author of Bronze Age mindset the respect and adulation and status that he feels like he deserves. He feels like he is a superior man... But in real life, he cannot be a superior man. In real life, he's an oddball. He's an eccentric who lacks normal, genuine human connections. And so out of this fury that he hasn't been accorded the the proper veneration, status, respect, 
prestige that he feels he is rightly owed comes the, the, the furious output. To Celine, a lot of it seems crazy or deliberately crazy, like he's attempting to troll us. For instance, there's a section of the book where he's talking about geographers lying to us. For instance, and uh, Luke Croft says Richard Spence was always open about his name and views. Was he open about how he welcomed people hailing him with, uh, you know, hail, hail Spencer or uh, seek Kyle, right? I, I don't think he was quite open about how much he venerated the Nazi adulation that he received in private. He, he tried to keep that private. He tried to present a reasonable figure to the public, to the mainstream media, in private, he lapped up as much Nazi adulation as he could whip up. Don't think he wanted to make public how he was sleeping with the girlfriends of his followers. Don't think he wanted to make public his extensive you know, drug and alcohol abuse. So I think there was a great deal of Richard Spencer's life that he tried to keep on the down low. Since that the Earth is actually much smaller than we think it is. And, and I, I don't mean smaller in a metaphorical sense. I mean in a literal sense. Also that many cities in the world are actually the same. Now, this could be argued metaphorically, but the book... And uh, the chat says Richard Spencer admires Napoleon more than Hitler. At least that's what he says publicly. In his private life, he got, you know, he would take and whip up and seek out every bit of hit Hitler adulation as he could possibly receive. He, he deliberately took the alt-right, which was formerly known as a bunch of merry pranksters, and as closely as he could intertwined it with the Nazi outlook. And privately, he would, you know, whip up storms of people seekiling him. That's what got him off. Argues as if it uh, were literal. Do you think that uh, Bronze Age pervert is Mencius Moldbug? Oh, I have no idea. I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've read Moldbug, and I, I stopped reading him for this reason. I, I thought, I'm a pretty clever fellow, but I have no idea what this guy's on about. When I do figure out what uh, Manchester Morbug is on about, I realize he doesn't know nearly as much as he thinks he does. So Manchester Morbug, Curtis Yarvin, right, makes all sorts of grand pronouncements about topics he doesn't know very much about. I'm no scholar of World War II, but when he starts talking about World War II, you know, I realize that he knows even less than I do. I realize that he knows even less than I do in all sorts of areas, and yet he feels completely confident making all sorts of grand sweeping pronouncements. So my experience of Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Morbug, is either I don't have a clue what he's talking about, it's just you know, so abstruse and so poorly written, or when I do know what he's talking about, it doesn't stand up to critical scrutiny. Uh, Dennis Dale, welcome to the show. Do you have any thoughts on the Bronze Age mindset? Yeah, uh, you know, it was fun in parts. Um, you know, I, in parts not, um, you know, some of his arguments are brilliant and sometimes it's just silly. That part about history, Kevin, and the geography thing. Yeah, it, you know, it's weird, it just strikes me is that we have to learn how to read all over again because people now will give in and out of trolling and stuff, which is what I think this guy does here. Or he might just lead you into it. At some point you're following along with him and all of a sudden he's saying some crazy thing like, uh, you know, who knows, right? If Rio de Janeiro is not actually New York or some crazy stuff like this. But it's a lot of fun in his critique of, you know, so-called scientism. It's the usual stuff, but it's very powerful. Um, I wanted to say something about, you mentioned history. He falls into the trap that, that Nietzsche did. And of course, you could look at this book as simply a gloss on Nietzsche, if you wanted to. This idea that there's no such thing as truth. Well, Roger Scruton pointed out that um, then this would obviously have to be true of the person who made the claim. And if any person makes such a claim, um, one should stop 
paying attention. He goes on at great length about how what we know, for instance, about the ancient world uh, could have been cobbled together by later scribes, uh, for instance, Christian scribes. But then he goes on to quote at great length about the ancient world. Right. And there's also, I don't know, that this confusion about ancient religion, about, for, for instance, Greek mythology, he weaves in and out of this, and this may be deliberate, one doesn't really know whether he believes that these gods are real or not. Well, yeah, I I'm not even certain of the level of his religious. He has religious sentiment. I don't feel like he has religious belief. He keeps pointing out the holes in. A lot like uh, Jordan Peterson. I mean, Jordan Peterson's an atheist who devotes himself to promoting Christianity, but he himself is absolutely bored, silly, participating in Christianity. And so uh, Bronze Age pervert likes to wrap himself in, in the mantle of religion when, when it's convenient, but uh, I suspect he would be absolutely bored to death actually trying to live Christianity. Logic, reason, you know, the gaps that we've all been talking about, you know, we were talking about with the last book. And, and, but he doesn't really provide anything. He says, well, there's the Greek gods over there, and there's that tradition over there. Traditions you might as well trash, like the Christian tradition in another context, you know, so. He doesn't understand the Christian tradition at all. He talks about going to churches and being bored. Now, he makes a great deal in the book about sacrifice, and he evidently does not know, because it would appear he has no knowledge of the Catholic or Orthodox tradition, that uh, Orthodox Christianity is based on a sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass, which Christians, Orthodox Christians, believe to be real. Right. Kevin, yeah. did you have further thoughts? Because uh, you were just getting started there. When... I interrupted no, you were interrupted by. So do you have further thoughts, Dennis? Well, no, I mean, here's another thing. He talks about the, the hatred of beauty, which has existed through all time and space, apparently. But remember, his beauty is boys, right? The, the greatest form of beauty for him is uh, boys, young men, right? And the greatest form of love, as in ancient uh, Egypt and as in what Jerry Sandusky had, is the, the, the love and the eros between grown men and boys. He doesn't seem to know about the Middle Ages then, because the Middle Ages, uh, beauty was venerated. And you have a situation where, uh, say, the Vikings, my ancestors, uh, the pirates that he so admires, were invited to take over Normandy, which they did in a very short order, were spending vast sums of money to build the most beautiful buildings the world has ever seen. Yeah, this distinction he makes is not real um, between the pirate and the farmers. He has nothing but disdain for the mass. Uh, where does he think this elite emerges from, you know? Well, one, sorry to interrupt, but one other thing in that respect. Now, he likes the Greeks a lot, the ancient Greeks, and he talks about wine and their use of wine, but wine is agricultural. Non-agricultural people have very primitive forms of alcohol. Wine is not a primitive form of alcohol. Right. Uh, Dennis, I, I want to get all of your thoughts on the book, so we're not going to interrupt you. Go ahead, Dennis. Oh, no, I was just listening to Kevin. Kevin's got a lot better stuff than me. Well, go on. A lot of scattered notes. Well, go ahead, give us your scattered notes. Did you guys talk about the fact that um, Sailor, I, I found this old post from Sailor, Somebody found out that um, Steve Bannon was reading Moldbug, and Moldbug sort of rickrolled them. He directed them to Bronze Age Pervert. Yeah, and that might have been where that uh, that rumor started. But I also heard it might have been Jack Donovan. Is that the guy's name? Yeah, that's the his name. Gay masculinist dude. Yeah, uh, Jack Donovan leading homosexual in the alt-right. But Bronze Age Pervert doesn't uh, – is this guy gay? I don't even know. I mean, everything about this is very gay in that thing, but he, he hates uh, homosexuality apparently. Well, modern gayness. Right. I think he makes that quite clear. Just effeminate gayness. And he has a very bizarre and I, I think just totally wrong theory about 
gay, this profusion of gay behavior now is a kind of reaction to our matriarchy, to this, the owned space, he calls it, of, of matriarchy. And all these guys are guys that would be out conquering, but they're, you know. I question why there's so many gay men in the distant right. One, you get to play dress up. Uh, two, it doesn't matter that you don't have a nuclear family. All right. If you have a wife and you have kids, you're going to be far less likely to participate in distant politics. But if you don't have a wife and a kid, your kids, you're going to be much more looking for excitement. So I get my excitement in, in large part doing live streams like this. I also you know, delve into distant politics. I have a much greater need for excitement than a guy who's married with, with a wife and kids, right? If you're married with a wife and kids, you're not out there looking for excitement. You get pretty much the, all the excitement you need from your family. And instead adopting this homosexual, I don't buy that. I think a lot of these guys are adopting homosexuality because they're just quitting because they can't keep up. I mean, they're just confused in this matriarchy, but it's not like these are the conquering spirits. That's what I don't see in, in a lot of these guys. But anyway, I just, I can't follow where he you know, stands on anything. You know, uh, it's a lot of fun to read him, but like I said, uh, where does he think um, this elite is going to emerge from? Uh, he has such contempt for common people. Um, and again, I don't know whether to take him seriously. You don't know when he's trolling or not. Well, you know, this goes back to the Ubermensch of, of Nietzsche again. Well, like you said, it's all a gloss on Nietzsche. It's Nietzsche is a little bit Camille Paglia. And there's one more that I was thinking of earlier. That well, he, he name checks Schopenhauer uh, several times. You mentioned Jack Donovan. He does not, Bronze Age Perfect does not share the rather um, gross and, and insane misogyny uh, of Donovan. Uh, he does have very strong hatred of uh, matriarchy, which he sees at the uh, central to the modern bug man way of living. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Uh, we got a super chat from Brindlefly. He says, would Kevin Michael Grace prefer to live in the stone, bronze or iron age? Which is the best age for being a pervert? Also, what brand of cigarettes is best? Uh, the cigarette question is easy to answer for me. Uh, my preferred brand is uh, Jitan, but uh, you can't get them anymore or it's very difficult to uh, get them. I, I wouldn't want to live in any of those uh, ages and it's not a question that i could possibly entertain i mean leaving aside the fact that you know when, when people even bronze age pervert they, they talk about um prehistorical ages what do we know about them i mean yeah. he makes a lot of the the ignorance the learned ignorance of scientists but again you know falling into the same trap right our, our knowledge of of prehistory is obviously uh minimal well, and he tries to argue at some point that it's totally untrustworthy because people could have excised entire centuries, right? And just inserted, well, we knew that, you know, that's this, what, there must be a name for this fallacy, but we see it introduced, this uncertainty fallacy, where people want to introduce it as if it's not, you know, if it doesn't affect their side equally of whatever it is they're saying. But yeah, oh, I, just, My version of history is right. Every other, every, everyone else's version of history is, is wrong. I just wanted to mention one of the things. Okay, so I was so inspired by talking about Bronze Age Pervert, I started streaming at about 6.50 this morning. Let me fast forward to more from this show that uh, I did with Kevin Michael Grace, Dennis Dale, Casey on June 22nd, 2018. Right, sexual freedoms is that now all these awesome things to do, you know, to, to go do with other guys. Is I sure, they're more expressive. Unless we decide we're going to call ourselves what we are, white people, uh, and, you know, in a in expressive louder and all that's great. I love them. I'm kind of for white are banging on drums in the city center and you know dancing and singing and it seems it seems quite lively to me and it also seems authentic like authentically theirs or ours whereas you know i don't know that i could just show up at a um like one of duvid's interfaith like at a hindu temple like i'm always and uh luke Croft says are there any good parts of bronze age pervert yes he, he is he's brilliant he is learned he is steeped in the ancient Greeks, who had some thought-provoking philosophy, and 
there there are times when he has you know some pretty sharp uh, provocations, all right? Things that uh, make you think a second time, kind of you know stop you in your tracks. It's going to feel like an outsider. So what we have to do is to find it within ourselves, and that's what I'm assuming. Bronze Age, Bronze Age pervert is a white guy. Can we assume that? Do, yes. Yeah. So if, if so, like um, you know, the the Greeks did this, right? This was the mystery school came out of there, and I don't know. I'm just uh. Just a guy hoping that a new messiah shows up. Don't, don't fall for this business that you're a white guy, that you're some bland thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, the Southern people like Luke's talking about are more expressive, louder, and all that's great. I love them. I'm kind of, I kind of thrive in that environment myself. But our people. So I was reading or listening to a New York Times article on self-help guru, the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, and he lived for many years in Latin America because he came from relatively repressed, according to him, you know, Anglo-Saxon upbringing. And so he really enjoys how emotionally expressive Latin Americans are. And as someone who came from an Anglo-Saxon upbringing myself and who, who treasures my you know, Anglo-Saxon family and that civilization, yeah, I've enjoyed uh, Jewish culture, which is much more emotionally expressive. So I understand why people who come from more emotionally repressed upbringing can enjoy you know, dipping into experimenting with traveling around a more emotionally expressive upbringing. Not that there aren't many wonderful things about the Northern European civilization. People are quieter, modest, reserved. And it's, and, and fuck those goddamn Southerners. We're not going to fucking copy those assholes. Fuck them. I'm tired of hearing of this shit. We need to preserve our way. And there's a way that is suited for you, Manic, and me, because it's in our goddamn genes and it's been evolved. Yes, it's evolved over centuries in us. We're suited toward a way of life that is gentler, kinder than this fucking hellhole they're, they're visiting upon us. And these other people are going to beat us because they're stronger, they're more cohesive, they're louder, they're brasher, they're more expressive. Unless we decide we're going to call ourselves what we are, white people, uh, and, you know, in a, in, in a sort of war with these others. Uh, yeah, I don't think that that mindset that we're white people at war with non-white people is a useful mindset uh, to the extent extent that people identify anything like what Dennis is talking about. People identify as English, they identify as French, they identify as German or Norwegian or Swiss or Canadian or Australian or, or American, right? Very few people in the United States, North, North America, Australia, Europe identify primarily as white and feel at war with the non-whites around them. That's not going to be a, an adaptive strategy for most people, right? Most people get their primary sense of meaning from their community, from their family, from their religion. So people identify as Protestant, as Presbyterian, as, as Methodist, as Seventh-day Adventist, as Anglican or, or Roman Catholic or, or Jewish, or they identify with their family and their extended family or their profession. Right? Not many white people feel like they are at war with non-whites. And life in first world countries Right? It's not really suited for a white person to go out there with an attitude of, you know, we're at war with, with non-whites. It's not a, usually an adaptive strategy. And defend these values of modesty and, and you know, a more yeah, chaste. Yeah. I'd like to live in a Jane Austen world. I like that world. I like 1950s America. Uh, I, I like the stiff upper lip. I grew up in Australia where you did not, men did not cry, where you did not spill over with emotion. But what you had is your mates. You had very strong ties with your mates in Australia because everyone was white and everyone basically was of Northern European heritage uh, dominantly. And so you had a cohesive uh, community and, and mateship was just very strong. And so someone was making an absurd comment in the chat that I have something against uh, friendship or closeness between men. The, the very opposite. Uh, what I love about 
traditional ways of life is that it, it makes forming close bonds so much easier, whether it's Orthodox Judaism or like uh, pre-1980s Australia, where, where you had an overwhelmingly white country where mates were, were matey with each other. It was cool that like 10 of you would all go out to the outback and shoot kangaroos or climb, you know, climb a, a mountain or, uh, you know, go on a hike or whatever guys want to do. But uh, one of the problems with the, with the rise of homosexual rights and homosexual freedoms is that now all these awesome things to do, you know, to, to go do with other guys, as, you know, many of them are getting called gay and there's this like suspicion of male friendship, which is a great point that the Bronze Age uh, mindset book makes that uh, in, in today's age, there's a suspicion of, of male friendship, but that's just a, a horrible thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I'm, I'm not surprised that he put that in there. That's what I think his aesthetic is, which is that there is a part of us that goes, ew, that's gay when we see a guy with his shirt off, but maybe we could get over that a little bit and not be so freaked out and run in the other direction and just be like, cool, just whatever. It's just a guy with his, you don't have to be, you don't have to be anything. You're just neutral about it. It's just a guy, you know? Uh, Luke, on your, I have to go in a minute, and I'm sorry, I got to eat dinner with the kids and stuff, but I wanted to say that a lot of that description of Australia, which is the one that my dad tells me about from the early 50s in America also, where they're running around and swimming in the swimming hole and all that stuff, it doesn't it seem like there's um, like active outdoor-y kinds of things are how men bond. And so if we take those away... If you- and uh, chat says, 40 has given up on inspiring visions of the future, like 1960s revolutionary. He's uh, ended up as an individualist consumer. Well, on my two trips back to... Australia in the last uh, 18 months, I experienced an inspiring vision of the future. Do you know what it's like to be around large numbers of people who are basically on the same page? I mean, that's incredible. So to whatever extent we can produce a coherent, cohesive culture that is moving towards a more inspiring vision of the future. So step one is locking up super predators, right? We could have 10% of the crime rate that we currently have and have a much more coherent, cohesive, safe society where women could feel you know, safe walking out alone at night to you know, go to the grocery store or go to a club or you know, a coffee shop or, or a bar if we simply locked up super predators. So that's my, that's my plank number one for an inspiring future, right? Lock up super predators and enable freedom of association. Roll back civil rights legislation with all its perverse incentives to put different groups at war with each other, to encourage litigation, to have the government regulating the most private parts of our life. I would like to lock up super predators, number one priority. Second priority, roll back all the civil rights legislation to enable people to enjoy their private property, to enable people to enjoy freedom of association, and to enable the development of coherent, cohesive, organic communities where people can experience the joy of being on the same page with other people and live in communities where pretty much everybody's on the same page. That's my vision of the future. You can't shoot kangaroos, but you can only play video games uh, or, you know, at most aggressive basketball. It, it feels like we're, like, society is built in a way that's gay, you know? Does a 40 engage in wrestling and frolicking with his mates? Sure, yeah, a lot of dancing at the Orthodox shows I go to, a lot of uh, wrestling a lot of uh, Krav Maga, self-defense courses, uh, training with guns. Yeah, good stuff. You know, or that's feminine or whatever. And what we really need are you know, uh, hunting trips or something like that. I don't, the problem is that it just seems like there's no way to do that other than like the LARPy weekend camping trip. But it needs to be a part of almost every day of the week instead. Um, so anyway, I'm off for the night. But, uh, okay, thanks, thanks for coming by. Uh, thanks. Some good points there, uh, Medic. Uh, Kevin, I had to mute you because there was some ungodly noise in the background, but go ahead and unmute when you're ready so that you can uh, wait back in. So, Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Kevin. Okay. 
when I was in grade nine, I, I moved from North Vancouver to Vancouver, and my, East Vancouver then was dominated by Italians. I had no experience with Italians. I found this rather shocking and distressing. I realized after some time. And uh, I do like intense emotional relationships with men, right? Where we do dance and we do wrestle and we do engage in self-defense and, right, we're close physically, emotionally, right? That's really important to me. The problem in living in a, you know, gay is great, gay, 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 everything is gay around you is that these normal forms of human connection and, and bonding between men that become increasingly uncomfortable for many people. So, yeah, two blokes going off to, to the desert to look at flowers in bloom or, you know, men going together to the opera or to uh, appreciate the, the higher arts, right, now gets classified as gay. It didn't used to get classified as gay 50, 70, 80 years ago. There's you know, nothing inherently gay, two men sleeping in the same bed, two men, you know, going out into the woods backpacking together. But in our society that's become increasingly gay, then all these normal, healthy forms of friendship between men have become you know, sexualized, at least in many minds, and stigmatized. And that, uh, that this emotionalism of the Italians, particularly the Southern Italians, is mostly put on. No one could be that aggrieved all the time. And I realized that they put on a front of being uh, insulted by everything in order not to be insulted. In the same way, I, I learned from reading Philip K. Dick, The Man in the High Castle, the Japanese are, are not the robots that uh, we are told they are, that they are exceedingly emotional and that the elaborate system of convention they have is designed to suppress their uh, emotionality. Do I dream about colonizing the stars? I, I confess I don't really think about it. I guess at times I've been moved by various movies or documentaries or books I've read on the topic. It's not something I think about very much. Fraser says Australia is only cohesive in specific localities. Much of urban Australia is turbo multiculturalism. Younger cohorts are quickly becoming more and more diverse. So I've spent uh, about four months in Sydney in the last 18 months. Sydney's incredibly multicultural and incredibly cohesive. Now, still the, the least cohesive uh, part of Australia, probably, but still so much more cohesive, uh, so much lower in crime, so much more trusting. Uh, there's so much more of a sense that you're on the same page together, so... They would show the World Cup at uh, big outdoor parks and people from you know, many different nations would gather in the park, appreciate the World Cup. But there's still much more of a sense of being on the same page compared to arriving back in Los Angeles at LAX and, and riding the bus and you know, going to Venice or Santa Monica Beach. There's almost no sense of being on the same page with other people. When I went to Bondi Beach and the other great beaches in Sydney's eastern suburbs, yeah, there was a strong sense that you're on the same page together even though this is you know, about the most multicultural and diverse part of Australia. They have developed a, a type of multiculturalism and diversity that still enables low crime rates and relatively high rates of social cohesion and social trust, though not as high as in uh, regional Australia, country Australia. All right, They have you know, far, far higher rates of social trust and social cohesion there. But what Australia has at its most multicultural and diverse is still light years ahead of what people in general get to enjoy in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, uh, Chicago, Miami. Their high emotion such that it does not overflow. In the same way that the stiff upper lip of the English is again a response to the traditional intense romanticism of the English. Right, these are both I, island, island nations that have to evolve these elaborate rituals of courtesy to make living so intensely together uh, livable. 
Yeah, I mean, Bronze Age Perfect makes an excellent point in the book, which you mentioned, that this idea of male friendship is now considered risible or dangerous. Uh, oh, because it's all gay. Well, it isn't. And, you know, only Swaki Mali Ponce is my, my reaction to that. These are the worst people in the world. These are the people who go through, you know, the letters of previous age when some man expresses, you know, uh, his feelings for another man. Oh, gay, gay. And I just think that these these people are the worst and shouldn't be tolerated. But, you know, this he is he makes a strong point in the book and i think it's it's very important that in keeping men from a fellowship is one of the ways in which the elite has brought about this global homo world that there's no possibility of resistance and how have we severely damaged fellowship among men or among groups in general the, the massive civil rights legislation with its incentives for litigation and the diminishing of private property and freedom of association. We've essentially, as Christopher Caldwell points out in his terrific book, The Age of Entitlement, we've replaced the constitution that we developed in the 18th century with a brand new constitution, right? The civil rights constitution has overridden our traditional rights and virtues. Because, oh, you get five or six men together, oh, it must be gay, right? I mean, I'll just point out in passing that it is curious to me that the worst insult the homosexual has is, is you're just like me. It's the worst insult. And a social dynamic completely changes when you bring a woman into the mix. Uh, it, I mean, you can have six guys, you know, kibitzing and, and uh, hanging out, you know, sitting around a table, drinking, eating, uh, having uproarious conversation. And then the conversation and the whole atmosphere will change dramatically once you introduce a woman to the midst. And essentially, like in, in a workplace, you can have high morale if it's all men or at least uh, where there are places where in the workplace it can be all men. But once you introduce women into that mix, if the women are, you know, a five or above, the guys are going to be thinking about banging her. And they're also going to be pulling their punches and it's just going to ruin male camaraderie. But just like one single woman will ruin the male camaraderie between 12 guys. And this has destroyed all the service clubs, the Kiwanis and uh, the other service clubs. Once they were forced to start allowing women into their midst, it just destroyed the camaraderie. Uh, men dropped out because unless... You, you preserve a, a space where men can just be with men. They're going to drop out of service clubs. They're going to drop out of religions. They're going to drop out of uh, voluntary organizations. They're going to drop out of community organizations because men are wired to want to be with men unless it's unless it's their, their spouse. Or, or Yeah, men want to be with men and women want to be with men. But often women don't want to be with other women and often men don't want to be with women. For a family member, there's, there's like absolutely no reason for most men most of the time to be interacting with a woman. You're not going to be getting like great insights into life from, from the woman. Like by and large, the more a man is able to interact solely with other men, aside from his spouse, the happier he is. Well, no, you're quite right about that. If, if one woman enters, a, enters into a group of men, the men will typically try to one impress her or two seduce her or, you know, both. If a group of women enter into a group of men, then the group be, becomes subverted uh, by these female jealousies that men simply cannot understand you know i'll give you an example simple example that if if a man let's say a, a man buys a new car let's say it's a hyundai you know one of the better ones and he starts talking about how much he loves this car no man well i mean he would be expelled if he pulled this kind of stunt to say something like oh well you know i have an audi you know in other words you're a jerk my car is better than yours but this is the sort of thing that, that women do without thinking this constant jockeying for status and it, it makes it makes it impossible to relax you know, I mean, this may have come up before, but, you know, I, I told women, no, we don't spend our time talking about you, bitching about you, because we get together to have a good time, not a bad time. Men don't get their spaces anymore, though, because it's considered a conspiracy. And if it's white men, if it's more than three white guys anywhere, unsupervised, it's a hate crime at this point. Women still have their sanctuary, though, I think. Both sexes need it, obviously. I mean, the tension goes up. 
everything you described, it just ratchets up the tension in any group dynamic, you know, to put the woman in there. And, and you're right. Rarely are you working. I guess we have to work with women now. So in those work situations, you, you have a reason. You're forced to interact with a woman for a reason other than sex or Right. There's no reason in male's benefit to interact with women aside from their family. I mean, I guess there are exceptions. You know, there are some brilliant women, but by and large, it just saps your your, your morale. It complicates your life. It uh, compromises you. Uh, I think I notice it, it, when I go through life, that the men who can spend the most of their life with other men are far and away happier than men who are just having to constantly interact with women. You know, there's a there was a political party in Canada that rose in the late 1980s, and by the 1990s, it became the official opposition. It was called the Reform Party. It, this later got folded into what's now called the Conservative Party, which replaced the Progressive Conservative Party. But I found I was writing a story about the party years ago, and I found out to my amazement that they invited the spouses of caucus members to caucus meetings. And I asked several of the Reform MPs about this. Basically, my question is, what are you nuts? And they say, well, what's wrong with that? I said, you can't have any kind of honesty in a situation like that. Some woman bursts into tears because her husband was criticized. Yeah, it's crazy. It just destroys morale. It, it just destroys morale. It confuses people. It like saps our institutions. I mean, now the military has had to increasingly open up to women. And so, I mean, the military doesn't have the morale it used to have. Sports clubs don't have the morale they used to have. Uh, service clubs don't have the morale they used to have. Uh, modern forms of religion, mainstream forms of religion don't have the morale they used to have, except for in those forms of traditional religion where there are very separate roles for, for men and women. In, in Orthodox Judaism, by and large, there's, there's high morale uh, among men. In Reform and Conservative Judaism, men are increasingly difficult to find because unless you set aside specific rituals, specific spaces, specific tasks for men only, men are going to drop out. There's no way they're going to compete with women. It's just completely demoralizing. It's icky. Uh, like no man wants to have to compete with a woman. It's like you know competing with a retarded child. Whoa, whoa. It's just different and it's often awkward. Now, I, I enjoy my interactions and friendships with women, but I certainly... You know, certainly appreciate male-only spaces as well. All right. Uh, this is an interview with Jack Butler of National Review on emerging forms of paganism on the right, such as the Brun Age mindset here. Much more primal. And the, the primary exponent of this is someone I'm sure we will talk about at length in the the rest of this podcast is a fellow who calls himself Brun's Age pervert, but his, his actual name is Custom Mario. So those are, those are two of the varieties. Those are the ones that I talk about in the article. And they're, they both have become more prominent as Christianity's role in public life fades, and this is what uh, has, I believe it was Ross Douthat who said something along the lines of, although he's not alone in saying this, that if you didn't like the religious right, get ready for the post-religious right. I was, and, I was just going to reference the exact same quote from Ross yes. uh, about, uh, about the right in particular, because the, the, the left paganism, I think we've uh, discussed ad nauseum um, through the lens of, of wokeness, uh, I've described as um, being a civic religion without forgiveness, but with perpetual atonement. You can see the same uh, sacraments and rituals uh, kind of aping traditional religion. Uh, but the, the vitalism, the right paganism is what seems to be new on the scene. So why, why don't we start here in down that road? Uh, who or what is Bronze Age pervert and what is the Bronze Age lifestyle? Uh, as far as I know, it's a who, not a what. Uh, named Kosan Almaru, Yale political science PhD from Romania. Don't know much else about him. Much of the, his actual activities are, he's one of these internet personalities who likes to shroud his life in secrecy and just uh, post on Twitter. That's post with an A in it <laughs> to, uh, to specify in lieu of actually having a, public, public, a real public persona. But yeah, the, the, and he's the author, wouldn't really care much about this guy if he weren't the author of this I don't know if we could, I'll call it, want to call it a book, but he calls it an exhortation called Bronze Age Mindset. And it came out in 2018, became popular in 2019 when people in the orbit of the Trump administration, it became noticed that they were reading it, especially young young adult men in the Trump administration and the Trump administration orbit. It's essentially a, 
a distillation of this vitalism that I was describing. It, its thesis is that the world, as it is currently constituted, exists to suppress the proper expression of masculine virtue and to bury and reject beauty with garbage, I think is the term used, and that this conspiracy of suppression is being orchestrated by people the author calls bugmen or human cockroaches. So it's pretty vivid language, intentionally ungrammatical in parts. It's supposed to be written in this kind of internet vernacular to appeal to bring Nietzscheanism to a modern audience. But uh, this is all being directed against people that the author calls superior specimens, that the people for whom the text is written, whom he calls to rise above this in ways that are vague, but also disturbing at the same time. And at the root of all this also is a anti-American founding belief that the, the the founding principle is not actually responsible for America's success. It's just the extent to which people involved in it ex accessed their Bronze Age mindset, which I should say that the titular Bronze, Bronze Age mindset in the book is described most pithily by the author as the desire to be worshipped as a god. That's the one-sentence description. So founding doesn't matter. Christianity suppresses the natural spirit of man and also uh, various figures associated with Christianity, including uh, Augustine, probably didn't exist. So it's very, it's just very like, all. It, it's in the long tradition of, of people who believe that the Christian worldview is, is responsible for a great enfeebling of Western man, not a great ennobling of him. So we, we've, we've gotten that again, which is great. So now I think, and it's hard to tell how popular this really is because the author counsels readers, if asked, to deny that they have read the work. So, but it, there, there is a following and I'll, I'll get into, if you want to ask a more specific question, I'll get into why, how I think is the best way to approach dealing and arguing with this person. Um, but I'll let you, uh, and I'm sure I get a lot here, so I, I feel like I should, I should well, get back to you because there's a lot to clarify and a lot to elaborate. There's a certain interesting overlap there in the the way that they treat the American founding with, say, like the Patrick Deneen crowd, who is also hostile to the American founding, although certainly coming from a different perspective that is affirming of Christianity, uh, but rejecting yes. nonetheless of the Enlightenment-informed liberalism that uh, helped craft the American founding. Right. There, There is some overlap, but also these two groups are incompatible and at each other's throats. Understandably so. Uh, I mean, this is... The, the Bronze Age mindset is explicitly an anti-Christian thing. And, the, and, and integralism or post-liberalism, whatever you want to call it, for all of its flaws, it's still Christian. So the, these things are not going to... They can't go together. And you've seen these two groups at odds with one another. Most recently, this was the pro, one of the proximate causes of the most recent article I wrote against the New Paganism for National Review. There was this blow-up over... I, I believe the, the website the publication was LifeSite News. They did, it tweeted an article about how uh, in, in states where abortion has been banned or severely restricted, the number of abortions is actually going down. This is something that pro-lifers naturally would celebrate. But it shows, the, the website chose as the featured image for this article, a picture of a, of a black baby. And this caused a very specific uh, vitriolic group of people online, the vitalists, to be very mad because they, they I mean, fundamentally, they don't, if, if fewer abortions means more non-white babies, they would rather have more abortions. Like, as simple as that. And that, that goes into the uh, eugenic preoccupation of vitalism. I mean, Bronze Age mindset is pretty explicit about this. And Almario himself, after, as a result of this blow became very clear about his design, his belief that the success of ancient Greek civilization in particular was attributable to explicitly eugenic practices. And he would like to bring these back. He has written or has said in one, at least one forum that he wants to reinstate what he calls a platonic uh, Lebensborn program, which is, this was the thing that the Nazis did to, uh, to, to refine the Aryan race. So I, I, it's, again, that, that one of the problems with all of this is it's hard to tell where the trolling ends and where the, the earnestness begins. And this is in part because the Almaru and some of the people around him are, and some of the people who are fans with him, they're all, they're all downstream to some extent of the philosopher Leo Strauss. They're, they've really abused their Straussian educations. Uh, Leo Strauss is, this is a loaded name person to, to describe, but German philosopher who believed uh, who taught many things, among which uh, was the view that certain texts have a, a secret meaning that true only the truly educated can divine. So this this and this belief encourages people who 
are taught in this way to to employ such devices in their own right. But I, I choose... Yeah, the ancient texts have a secret meaning that only those with a special decoder ring, as Steve Saylor puts it, can understand. Uh, this encourages delusion. Uh, this encourages losing touch with reality about y your, your own perspicacity and wisdom that you, you know, really know what uh, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates were really on about and everyone else doesn't. To treat it as seriously as I perceive the author and his fans to believe it, and that makes me pretty unsettled given some of the things that are being described here. As you've described this, the question in my mind is, is this really just warmed over Nietzscheanism? I mean, it sounds very reminiscent of the works of Friedrich Nietzsche. So in your reading of this, uh, what are the similarities and what if uh, any differences do you see? Is this, can, can we draw a line between the two? I think there is at least something of a line to be drawn. Obviously, the, the contempt for Christianity is there. The, the enshrinement of certain lives as being inherently more valuable than others. And in, in a sense, it seems almost like a chat GPT prompt, like chat GPT, write, uh, write Nietzsche's works in, in the 4chan, the style of a 4chan poster, again, poster with an A. And so that, that's, that, that is a significant element of it. At the same time, I, I guess I should, I'll, I'll choose this, in, this moment to clarify. When I said this work was written as an exhortation, the, the most charitable perspective I could possibly apply to it is that there are certain things that are described in it and in the worldview of the author that have elements of truth to them. Like, I, I do believe that the modern life, I mean, I, I, at the beginning of this podcast, I was describing my problems with left paganism. I, I believe that is real and that it has worked against the authentic expression of, of masculine virtue, against many of the essential fundaments of civilization as we've understood it, against truth, against beauty, against all these things. So when I, when I, the reason that I've, I've got into these trenches is not because I'm, I'm some, some stick in the mud or some believer that everything right now is okay. I just, I, I don't think that this response, A, either it makes sense, or B, actually meaningfully separates from the, the problems that it describes. So like, if it's also post-religious, then what good is it? For example, if it's also anti-founding, then what, how is it going to help us? If it is also anti-family, as Bronze Age mindset fundamentally is in its uh, belief that creating a civilization where the strong, the, the, the justice is once again the role of the stronger fundamentally, and is more important than family life, then how is that going to help? So I just don't, I find it in certain ways actually more of a reinforcer of the most injurious parts of life today than any sort of calling to something better. And so that, that's why I've, I've devoted so, so, so much intellectual energy to rebutting it and to stressing that I am not by doing so, merely trying to discount criticisms of the way things are today. Well, why don't we dive a little bit into those criticisms of the way things are today? So you point out here in uh, the piece, and of course we'll include in the show notes, that you concede modern society suppresses, quote, the authentic expression of masculine virtue, and that conservatism has failed in many respects. So uh, what, what would be the bill of particulars there? Um, in what way do you see society as being uh, suppressing of the authentic expression of masculine virtue? Um, and of course, feel free as you answer this to uh, contextualize how you think this approach to it, the Bronze Age mindset thing, you know, is an improper response to legitimate concerns. But um, to talk about the what you see as the ways in which masculine virtue is suppressed and that um, conservatism uh, by your lights has uh, failed in many respects. So on the first thing, it can be, it, it can seem in some instances hard to quantify that except when you look at the downstream consequences. So I think the fact that the, the, the problems that uh, young males in particular are facing these days where they are being, the, they're falling behind on so many social metrics and they, this is a result, at least in part, of just the, the total the total disappearance, well, I won't say total disappearance, but a significant diminution of positive male role models, both in their lives and in the broader culture. And th this comes from a strange left-wing antipathy toward the idea that differences between the sexes are valid and, and that they are complementary. Like there's this attempt to blur them together to deny the utility of distinctions and to 
uh, reject the idea that both both sexes bring something important to life uh, by being different from one another. Male and female, he created them. Uh, that's that's what Genesis says. But then that's a good thing, and they are good as distinct from one another. And both of them, like obviously, both can be like you. They're supposed they're meant to balance one another out. But I, I think we have in in the world today many instances of that just not being the case. Where med, med, the male men in America today, there, there's a weird kind of bifurcation where I, I can't remember who wrote this essay now, but uh, you have wimps on one hand and barbarians on the other. There is this hollowing out of the uh, the essential male center of someone who is capable of doing what men have expected to do for, for decades. Uh, and, but the result is either to, to totally curdle into selfishness in either direction, where you're either in your basement playing video games all day, or you are, uh, I don't know, what would be the even the real-world instantiation of something like what Bronze Age, the Bronze Age mindset teaches? The well, I think a couple weeks ago, now I can't remember the name of this Twitter account, but it was just saying it was just saying like the, the, the way to be a real man. First, you got to get a vasectomy, and then you got to make sure you got to swear off women entirely and never even think about having children and just like spend twenty-four hours a day, eight days a week, twenty-five hours a day, eight days a week lifting. I'm pro lifting, by the way, but when you are, this is this sounds. What that reminds me of is the, the scene in American Psycho where he's uh, in bed with a prostitute and just looking at himself in the mirror while he's having sex with her. I mean, that's that's the other end of the spectrum. And so we have that in th those two things in abundance today. We don't have the, this this central center being or having been hollowed out. And now I've gone on so long, I've forgotten what your second question was. Uh, the second question was about... Oh, yeah, why is this a problem? Well, the failures of conservatism as well, which is... Um, I. I guess where when I'm looking at that statement in your piece, um, there seems this is where I think we get terminologically confused or some people get terminologically confused because there's almost nothing in your description of vitalism or of uh, this Bronze Age mindset that strikes me as being in any meaningful way conservative. No, um, there's certainly an association of it with the right. And you know, I've, I've interviewed Matt Continetti about his book as well. And I appreciated the distinction that he made there in separating the conservative movement from the right. And I think that helps under uh, helps us understand the current circumstances uh, uh, fairly well. So. In what way does uh, what are the failures of conservatism as you see them, and in what way did those failures, uh, real or imagined, impact and help drive this kind of a worldview? If it seems to be so clearly set apart from conservatism as I think you and I understand it. Well, I think one thing that happened, I think conservatism still to a considerable extent is caught in a post Cold War, post Reagan aimlessness, and it's, that's essentially lasted for longer than my adult life. There was I, I not to be overly nostalgic about a period that I had no historical memory of, obviously, but. During that Cold War period, there was a kind of focus and confidence within the conservative movement, obviously with exceptions, all sorts of complications, as Matt Connetti could explain at greater length. But there was at least a sense of what we believed and why we believed it. But since the end of the Cold War, things have been a little more aimless. And I think people, a lot of people within uh, conservatism have been coasting on there does conservatism, but... And is this a stand-in, in a sense, for uh, this lack of masculinity that I, I feel I see this online all the time, that yeah. the uh, rather than embodying the values of that kind of masculine center you described earlier, the form that it seems to take is people who just, again, post, with an A, very aggressively online, um, which, you know, fine, I have a Twitter account and I tweet too, so I'm, I'm not here to uh, tell people to, to not, you know, engage with the internet or social media at all, um, although don't tweet is always the best advice. Yes. Um, it, it is kind of a stand-in for the things that uh, are missing, but it is, I guess, you know, the, the term that I wrote down here was LARPing. LARPing, my, one of my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite words. Yeah, it's for people who aren't, again, familiar, who aren't terminally online, like uh, it seems that Jack lucky, and I lucky are. Them. Um, lucky them. It stands for live-action role-playing. It's like people who dress up in costume to pretend that they are, you know, in the video game Halo or that they are, you know, Jedi Knights or something like that. It is a form of taking uh, fiction and online culture and bringing it into the real world. Yes, I mean, that is definitely going on here. And that should itself tell you something. If, if our... If our culture has so thoroughly debauched and diluted actual masculinity that the best that a lot of people can do is to is to aggressively talk about their physiognomy to one another 
on Twitter that, that something has gone seriously wrong. And yeah, there, and that's why I have a certain measure of uh, <laughs> a certain measure of sorrow for people like that. I feel because they they have been totally misled by culture that doesn't know better and by the lack of actual um, examples of true masculinity in their lives. And they they there needs to be they need to be called to something better. And I, I am at somewhat at a loss as to how to do that. I'm trying to do that in my own work and in the extent that I'm able. Uh, but yeah, the substitute has become this LARPing, as you described it, which at best amounts to a parody or caricature of actual masculinity. And that that is not going to get us anywhere. That is only going to corrupt the souls of the people who try to display it and coarsen the civic fabric of our country. Um, but yeah, as for as for this uh, intersection with other parts of the right, I mentioned the Straussians earlier. I think the part of the reason of that this is that Bronze Age mindset has made whatever headway it actually has made, again, impossible to discern fully. He speaks not just in 4chan vernacular, but also in a Straussian vernacular. And this, for some reason, it calls a certain kind of mind similarly trained. It gets them interested in engaging with it on its own, at what they think is its own level. They think that they can, like, enter the Straussian dimension and do combat with, with, this, person, with this person and its ideas. And I think, in my experience of such uh, attempts, all that really happens is you end up, um, it's like Khan entering the Mutara Nebula in Star Trek II. The, except that this, this analogy is a little backwards because uh, it, Kirk is the good guy. But they, it's, you're, you're entering his playing field and then you, you just, you can't, you can't exit that unsullied. So I, I think that the, the ultimate result of the Claremont engagement with Bronze Age mindset that you described is not that the Bronze Age mindset types and the author became more like what Claremont at its best, at its terror uh, should be, but that it became more like him and work. How much of this do you think would exist without the prevalence of the internet. Like, this just seems like such an internet-driven phenomenon. Uh yeah, I mean, it's live-action role-playing. This is a guy, Bronze Age Pervert, who seems to have pretty much given up on real-life, real-life uh, career, real-life family, real-life connections to exist in, you know, in a cyberspace where he can imagine he's being worshipped as a god. So let me ask this same question in kind of two ways. You had alluded earlier to uh, we could get into your views on how to effectively take this on and, and rebut these kinds of arguments that are being made by these people. Uh, and part of it also that is in uh, the, the piece at National Review that we're discussing today, and we'll, of course we'll include in the show notes, is an argument for a, a forceful reinvigoration of Christianity. Uh, what does that look like to you? And what is, uh, what is your means? How have you discovered the best way to take on these kinds of odd arguments? My means for that, let's see. I, I mean, it means that I think acting itself is trying to work out the way that our country is set up i mean this is the, the famous adams quote is that it was it was made for a uh more whole immoral and religious people so we we it would be wholly inadequate for any other now adams did not specify what kind of morals or what kind of religion uh i i think that i i'm catholic myself i i that is my preference here and i think that but the way that our federalist architecture and our constitutional system were set up it depends on those virtues and it depends on people who believe in those things to actively enter public life and work within the system that was created as, as a way to, to pursue the, the common good as the, the system designed it to be pursued. And that, that manifests in all sorts of ways, but it, it becomes incumbent upon individuals in their respective spheres and at their respective levels to do it. And that's what makes it so tricky. Uh, and that, that's more than any other. Okay, here's another critique of uh, Bronze Age perverts philosophy. Just, uh, crazy young people sitting in their mother's basement, uh, you know, playing video games. Well, there is some of that, sure, <laughs> uh, but um, but no, you're right. Uh, and one of the essays uh, that I published recently, titled um, what's it titled? I've got it right here: uh, "The Bap Boys in America." Yep. And it's it's an attempt to understand and explain how and why a generation, primarily of highly educated young men, 
uh, not only in the United States, but around the world, actually, because this is becoming a worldwide movement, yep. uh, how and why they have become attracted uh, to, to these extraordinarily bad ideas. And I think, it's, I think it's really important for all of us to understand that the tectonic plates underneath our culture are shifting. Right. And, and this is really why I got interested in this, because, you know, the future is always with the young. And to understand where the country is going, you have to understand wh what it is that is appealing to, to young people. And, and in my particular case, I was interested in what young conservatives and libertarians were becoming interested in. And so it's important to begin with a kind of sociological profile of who these young, primarily men, but not all men, you know, what, what has brought them to this? Right. Because many this is interesting, because many of, the, of, of these young men uh, five, six years ago would have thought of themselves as mainstream Heritage Foundation uh, conservatives or Cato Institute libertarians. Um, but within a very short period of time, they migrated uh, and indeed have come to reject what they call conservatism. Inc. and Libertarianism Inc. for this for this new philosophy. Now, why why is it? I mean, who are these these young men? Look, this is a generation of primarily young men who, from the time they entered kindergarten until the time they graduate from high school and then college, have been told that they are racist, sexist, and homophobic by virtue of being white, male, and heterosexual. Right. And so, this is a generation of of of, of young men and women who, in effect, have really felt the slings and arrows uh, of the totalitarian left, right? In ways that you and I would not have when we were you know, going through uh, elementary school and high school and, and college, even though we had some of it back in the day, but not like them. I mean, they are living in a stifling uh, moral, psychological, intellectual environment and have grown up in this environment. And, and then all of a sudden one day, you know, when, when, when they're maybe say in their twenties and they, they come to realize that Brooks Brothers conservatism and white paper libertarianism have, have been feckless in defending them uh, they, they, they have rejected, uh, they come to reject um, uh, mainstream conservatism and libertarianism, and, and then all of a sudden they started looking for these alternatives. Some of them initially went with the so-called alt-right, but in more recent uh, years, they have migrated toward the Catholic trad cons and towards Bronze Age mindset. So, you know, on the one hand, you can say, and I do say in, in, in what I've been writing, is that I get it. I understand how and why uh, this generation has become what I call the lost generation. Um, they had no defenders. They had no intellectual defenders. Yep. And there was a vacuum that had been created by conservatism and libertarianism, Inc. Right? Nobody, nobody's interested in, in the Cato Institute producing another white paper on free market transportation policy. Right? That's not what interests the young today. Yeah, there's, uh, no, there's no inspiration. There's no, uh, and there's no fight. There's no fight against the evil of the left. There's no, and there's no projection of, of what is possible. And you know, I noticed you know, five years ago, again, when, uh, when the alt-right was active, uh, there were few, not many, but a few objectivists. Okay, let me skip that. Let's get to uh, Jeffrey Miller here. Howdy, everybody. I'm Jeffrey Miller, and I'm here with my friend and housemate and uh, intellectual sparring partner, Justin Murphy. And we're going to talk about Bronze Age pervert. Not just any Bronze Age pervert, but the Bronze Age pervert and his book, Bronze Age Mindset, which we both read and enjoyed and think is very uh, provocative and also stylistically and kind of intellectually interesting. So, um, Justin, you've done a little bit of coverage already of Bronze Age pervert, BAP, as we like to call him, or BAPism. Um, who is he? Probably not she, possibly them. W what are some of the theories we have about who this anonymous edgelord is? Okay, so this is uh, three years ago. We now know who he is. So let's fast forward through this. So I guess mother. one question that um, viewers might have or listeners might have is why would an evolutionary psychologist and a political scientist take this book at all seriously? Like, what's the big deal? Um, some little backstory is this thing was published in June 2018. Um, it's about 200 pages. For some reason, it's number one currently in the Amazon list for ancient Greek history books, which is kind of a weird achievement. And it's got over 250 reviews on Amazon, which indicates it's probably selling pretty well, um, 10 bucks on Kindle. And I think this is part of a kind of emerging ecosystem of alternative intellectual culture that includes some people on the far left, the alt-center, the, the sort of far right, the alt-right. But all of these terms are getting mixed up in very complicated ways, it seems like. And publishing anonymously, I think, is 
one way to get freedom, and freedom is a big theme in Bronze Age mindset or BAM. Freedom stylistically, freedom intellectually, freedom to say shit that nobody can say if they're not anonymous. I don't know how much uh, BAP or the BAP team would worry about getting doxxed for stuff like this, but we're going to try to respect their privacy to some degree, apart from sort of speculating about who's on, on the team. How do you think, though, Justin, that this fits in with your sort of vision of this emerging social media intellectual culture? Is it kind of breaking new ground in a way for what can be done, what can be communicated? That's a really good question. I, and I agree with you that I think that's kind of the main interest of, of the BAP project. It's what it represents in kind of the changing economy of publishing and the changing power distributions with respect to intellectual influence, for sure. Yeah. And I do think in a way that the success of the BAP book definitely updated some people's thinking and, and strategizing about where power really can be had through, you know, intellectual forms of, of discourse. And so some people might chuckle at intellectual because the book is, you know, it's funny. It's a lot of it is tongue in cheek. One gets the impression uh, it, it's written in this kind of poor grammar that seems to be part of the shtick. But in part because of that, it's, it has this kind of fun freewheeling vibe to it. And so it's not particularly original or impressive in any kind of scholarly or intellectual way. Like it doesn't, it certainly doesn't break any type of new ground in terms of, you know, long run intellectual progress. It's mostly a kind of remix of, of Nietzschean ideas and a kind of, a kind of tantalizing male vitalism that I think is quite hard to find elsewhere. So it, it, it packages or repackages a number of really interesting things in a fun and interesting and cool way, for sure. I'm not throwing any shade on it. Just to be clear for people who maybe have no idea what we're talking about, it's not really trying to be uh, an impressive sort of intellectual advancement, I don't think. Yeah, this is not the next big 600-page Stephen Pinker book that's right. like deeply researched and has a grand coherent intellectual vision that tries to be um, pleasing to both expert scientists and kind of the intelligent lay reader, whatever that is. This is more like, I, I just rewatched uh, the movie Troy, right? And there's a, a bit where Achilles is about to attack the Trojan homeland with his Myrmidons, his soldiers. And he's like, glory is out there. It's waiting for you. Take it. My hair always stands on end when I hear Achilles say that. And I think this book is, is supposed to be functioning as a bit of an inspirational exercise to sort of encourage all the other, you know, young edgelords to come out of the woodwork and do more stuff like this and to kind of illustrate this is possible. And you can write something in a style where it's like, ain't got time for grammar. Yeah. Grammar is yeah. for nerds and wusses yeah. and scientists and petty intellectuals. And bug men. And bug men. And, <laughs> Uh, so, right. yeah, yeah, so it's your initial question, though, was why are two professional intellectuals and published academics who write scholarly journal articles uh, talking about this book? And my answer to that personally is this is worth paying attention to and it's worth being interested in, even from academics who do, you know, more traditional scholarly work or what have you, because of what it represents as uh, as a moment in the changing distributions of power when it comes to, uh, you know, I'm just going to say intellectual influence, whether you think this is an intellectual project or not. Uh, th that's fine. You can debate that. But I definitely see it as in the intellectual domain, for sure. It's, it's messing it's messing with our expectations about what a book uh, is supposed to be or uh, what type of book is worth reading, because that's that's ultimately what is really interesting here. A lot of people are reading this book. And so if, if, in, in, in just that regard alone. Um, it's, it, it's worthy of attention and some consideration. And, and so I think that's probably why you and I are both interested in it, right? Because it represents, oh, this is like people are moving away from the kind of traditional sources of endorsement, right? Like there, once upon a time, nobody would read a book if it wasn't, you know, through one of the big five publishers or if you didn't have some really famous person on the back of it endorsing it or something like that. Whereas now, if you have your finger on the pulse of some sort of internet subculture and you're Man, that, that's really late. There's always been a time where people have had uh, self-publishing successes, where people have published their own newsletters, developed a following where people would pay hundreds of dollars a year to get your newsletter. My God, did I just, I really played a uh, really weak, uh, weak segment. My bad. I think actually the rhetoric has a lot in common with Trump's lack of polish. And, and yeah, that's right. From this sort of um, BAP mindset or also the all right mindset or also the, the far left anarchist, anything polished is marketing. It's professional right, marketing right. of some sort. It's messaging. It's designed you don't trust to, it. to influence and you don't trust it. So um, it sounds tangential, but I think it kind of gets to the heart of the book in a way that I hadn't even thought about before we started this. So yay for dialogue. <laughs> um, 
in Kanye's case, he, he came out as having bipolar, right? Okay, I, I think, think so. I think that's right. Not an expert. Um, I've studied mood disorders, and it, it certainly seems plausible. Like, yeah, he's got some manic episodes and maybe some depression. But also, of course, he's got world-class narcissism, particularly when he was younger. Like, he was a genius, and he really fucking knew it and wanted to tell the world about yeah. it and show it off. The problem, if you're an atheist genius, is you don't really have a structure for reining in that runaway narcissism. Yeah. I faced this a little bit in grad school. I was very, very arrogant intellectually. You know, I'm kind of smart, but I was, to be honest, smarter back then, younger. Fluid intelligence peaks in the early 20s. And I knew I had good ideas. I think in retrospect, one way that I kind of managed them was instead of submitting to God, I submitted to science and scholarship, and particularly Darwin. Darwin became my sort of icon of, I think I'm hot shit, but I knew my respect for him was even stronger. Mm. And half of the ideas I had, he had already had. So by kind of submitting to Darwin as a sort of patriarchal godlike figure, it actually can kind of help preserve my mental health because it kept me from having these kind of runaway delusions of grandeur. I could never convince myself, oh, everything I'm you know, writing in the mating mind is 100% original. By contrast, Bap says, well, Nietzsche would try to avoid reading other people because he didn't want to be infected by their ideas. Okay, that kind of makes sense from a kind of like purity-oriented, I don't want to be infected with bad memes point of view. Like that's kind of the rationale for Congress telling Facebook you have to get rid of fake news. We don't want to be infected by meme cooties. The problem with Nietzsche doing that is there's nothing to rein in his runaway narcissism. And he does get delusions of grandeur. And they're exacerbated by having you know, syphilis and it fucking up his brain in later years. But I suspect Kanye, at least at an unconscious level, realized there's this amazing God hack where if I submit to a Christian God, any God, it actually helps me be more productive, more on an even keel, and even a more effective genius. Because I don't think I'm the biggest thing around. That's right. It also gives you something to wrap your pursuit of glory around. Like the glory, glory is a kind of traditional masculine uh, aspiration. And there is a decline of a sense of glory today. Most, you know, young men, they, they, they have drives towards something like glory because there is something natural there. But most secular kind of normal bug men are incapable of really aspiring towards a, a true kind of historical glory. And I think that's in part because of the decline of God and, and, and incapacity to believe. Because the only way that you can do things on this earth that are truly profound and revolutionary that no one else wants to do, that everyone else is afraid to do, the only way to do that is you have to kind of hang yourself on some type of pivot, some type of fulcrum that is to some degree outside of this world, I think. At least that's, that's kind of how I see it. And, you know, so there's like this, this passage in the opening part of, of, of the Bat book where he talks about Empedocles and Mount Etna. And, uh, you know, Empedocles is famous for throwing himself into, into the volcano, essentially, and, you know, in, in a kind of pursuit of glory or what have you. And that sort of thing is, is sort of unthinkable for most Western men today. And, yeah, I'm all for bringing back a submission to God as the pathway to a reclamation of the pursuit of glory and kind of profound creative independence. Yeah, it's not, it's not a kind of oppressive, you know, authoritarian constraint like so many stupid people think it is. It's, 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 it's a hack, as you put it, that unlocks uh, a profound kind of liberation combined with a kind of based angering. Yeah, so it, one mark of a good book is when you're trying to talk about it, it actually sparks new ideas and you go off on tangents that aren't actually even that related to the book, but here we are. Um, I think for the Maynardblund, the Band of Brothers, their pursuit of glory was all about me as an individual, going to be a great warrior, my name will echo down through history. Um, my highest aspiration is to have a glorious death that my, my brothers will, will sing about forever. That's very much a sort of Indo-European um, warrior mindset. It's a Viking mindset. It's... A Bronze Age, a, a Bronze Age mindset, perhaps. Wait, perhaps. And th this submitting submitting to God is a little bit different. I think, you know, whereas a modern billionaire will typically build a skyscraper named after themselves, like a Trump Tower, literally, or they'll endow a university research center that's named after them. Um, your medieval rich guys would fund the building of a cathedral 
for the glory of God, and then they would bask in that reflected glory. So yeah, their name or their likeness would be included in the cathedral, but the, it would be Lincoln Cathedral for the town of Lincoln, not some particular guy's cathedral. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also an interesting status hack, that you can actually get all the prestige of supporting a collective endeavor without looking like too much of a, of a narcissist or an egoist. Yeah, that's right. That's true. It's a way to be kind of aggressively narcissistic about your own ambitions and powers without actually falling into the traps of narcissism because you're, you're chalking it up to something higher, something above you. And that's I think even, even publishing a book anonymously in a way is also a sort of hack for distancing the persona of the person ostensibly writing the book, Bronze Age Pervert, versus whoever that person really is. And so if you make that distinction between this is my real life versus my social media or authorial persona, you don't have to take that authorial persona too seriously. And you also kind of have to, to think about the care and feeding of it. Like, how am I going to support my ongoing social media persona? And, and I feel this, like if I haven't tweeted in a while, it's like people are missing Primal Poly out there, I think, maybe. <laughs> like, I have to maintain this. I have to water that plant. You know, I have to um, feed that, that horse or whatever. So I think we've talked about submission. We've talked about power. Um, the other dimension, of course, of, of submit is it's got a little bit of a, a BDSM power exchangey edge to it. And when I lecture about BDSM in my human sexuality class, I emphasize it freaks people out because we've absorbed this sort of egalitarian vision of highly consensual sex that is sort of supposed to be the gold standard for sexual ethics, but that actually a lot of people find really asexy, like not very sexy, not very hot. And I think what the Manosphere is doing, what the Red Pill guys are doing, what, what BAP is doing is trying to put the, the power back into sex. The gender feminists will say rape is a crime of power, not sex, but they actually don't have a very coherent way of thinking about the relations between uh, power and sex. So I think domination, submission, um, it, it's just kind of fascinating to me that you can see elements of that hierarchical psychology, both in the relationship between worshipers and their God, um, the warrior bands and their sort of leaders, and people doing BDSM roleplay in, in their own bedrooms. There's a thirst for that right. kind of hierarchical power structure. Right. And modern civilization is very, very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, that's a good diagnosis. I think you're right. It's, it's tapping something there. It's tapping some sort of unsatisfied latent demand for something like that. Now, I have a question for you. Have you seen the the images online that are associated with Bap and his crowd, the uh, hot male Chad photos that he likes to post and that his, his followers like to post? Yeah. Like, what do you think's up with that? What's your diagnosis of that? I think this is another case where people are absolutely unable to understand what the fuck's going on yeah. with the worship of the male physique without shoehorning it into there's latent homosexuality going on here. I don't think that actually makes sense. I think it's a total failure to understand how um, boys and young men actually tune into what is going to be successful as I grow up in terms of training strategies and regimens and paths to material and reproductive success. So when these people in the back crowd like to pass around photos of, uh, for folks who haven't seen what I'm talking about, it's usually, it's not just like jacked men with their shirts off. It's like extremely, <laughs> extremely jacked men, yep. like hilariously jacked men uh, with their shirts off or half naked or even often making somewhat like sexual poses. So this is something that they like to pass around, but your diagnosis, if I hear you correctly, Jeffrey, is that this is actually a pretty straightforward, non-sexual uh, valorization and admiration of, of male strength. That's how you read it? I think it's a little bit complicated, but imagine um, imagine two different 10-year-old boys with different psychologies and ask yourself who would do better in a sort of prehistoric competition for resources, status, and mates. One 10-year-old boy pays very close attention to which young men are big and strong and capable and respected and have killed other men and mated with women and care about hierarchy and status. And I'm going to sort of pay a lot of attention to those role models, those aspirational figures, like really close attention. What do they do? How do they act? How do they look? Because I want to transform myself to be more like them. Does that mean you actually want to have sex with them? I don't think it does. It means there's a psychological adaptation that directs your attention to the good phenotypic traits of you know, body, brain, and behavior that are worth emulating. Imagine the other 10-year-old who like looks around and sees a bunch of people, some of them successful, some not, 
and who's like, I don't know who I should imitate or who I should learn from. I'm not even going to pay attention to who has more muscles or who's more capable in hunting and fighting. I don't think that 10-year-old boy is going to do as well. So I imagine there's a pretty long history of selection for boys and men to pay attention to like who's worth emulating mm. and for their physical and behavioral features to capture our attention. It's just like when men watch war movies. Why do we find it fascinating to watch fighting and bloodshed? We've seen hundreds of decapitations by age 30 if you, if you watch TV and movies. So why watch yet another one? Because we've evolved to pay very close attention to combat. So that's a, that's a cool reading of it for sure. And I think you're definitely, there's something there. The thing that doesn't quite square up with that is these, these men who, who are kind of uh, idolized in, in the BAP sphere, they're, they're kind of so jacked that I do believe that for extreme bodybuilders, there, there's fitness costs, right? Like that, that's not an optimal body, right? Uh, for extreme, extremely jacked men. So there's something else. I think you're right, but there's something else going on, right? Because if, if it was just what you said, then they would pass around photos of kind of ideally, optimally fit, strong men, yeah. um, but kind of more in the traditional mold of like, you know, Calvin Klein, yeah. you know, underwear models or whatever, like pretty, you know, fit, chiseled, mm-hmm. healthy, you know, good looking men with, you know, all the women and the, the nice cars and all that, right? So there's something, there's something, there's an extra component going on. I don't know. Is it, is it satirical? Is it somewhat homosexual? Is it just edgelording? Is it just kind of the, the thrill of extreme, uh, you know, depictions? But um, there's something there's something interesting and weird going on with the the particular fetishization of these like extremely jacked men in often sexual kind of uh, angles. I think the analogy I would make here is why do teenage girls love watching YouTube makeup tutorials? Is it that they're all latent lesbians and they just love seeing beauty because they want the beauty, they want to interact with the beauty as a lover? Or is it just, wow, she knows how to do magic with eyeshadow that'll increase my attractiveness. I'm going to pay very close attention to that. I think it's the same with men, young men paying a lot of attention to bodybuilders, athletes, but also like within the domain of science, the sort of worship of any particular figures you consider to be a genius. You you hone in on those traits you want to cultivate. And that doesn't necessarily mean right. like I wanted to fuck Darwin just because I'm... Okay, so I have a delicious blueberry smoothie here. I, I got to run, guys, but uh, to be continued. Bye-bye.